0: We are truly fortunate today to welcome Matt Burton as a guest on the Squashing the Market podcast. A graduate of Sewanee College in 2007, Matt is now a grizzled and successful veteran of the startup fintech, ad tech, and venture capital universe. He held a range of roles at AdTech Pioneer AdMeld until it was acquired by Google in 2012. And then after a stint at Google, Matt joined LiveRail, which was subsequently acquired and very quickly and sold to uh, Facebook. Matt and a group of colleagues then founded Orchard Platform in 2014, which was acquired by online lending platform Cabbage. Matt recently joined FinTech VC leader QED Investments, and he's done all of that by age 35. Incredible. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Bill. So, Matt, let's get started. The resume is super impressive. You've done so many things, but tell us about the journey and some of the key moments from college to QED. What, what were some of the pivot points and what made you start companies, join companies, and become a venture capitalist?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think if I look back, you know, really um, kind of graduating from college, I I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know, to be completely honest. I'd interviewed at at quite a few companies uh, in New York, you know, some big, some small, kind of all over the place. I kind of fell into my first job uh, at operative because Really, they just needed warm bodies at that point in seats. They were growing super, super fast. They were hiring probably 15 people a week at that point. What kind of business was Operative? So Operative was an ad tech business. Mm -hmm. um, And so really focused on this massive change from kind of traditional media to online media. And so the, the clients were, you know, the big ones were Fox Interactive, which owned Fox News and owned MySpace later on, et cetera. And it was really these companies trying to figure out digital. You know, how can I not only create the content, put the content up, but how can I monetize it? How can I sell ads against it? How can I make sure those ads were served? And then how, most importantly, can I collect the money? And so Operative was a great experience, um, both because, you know, it grew very, very rapidly and then it ended up not scaling well. And so it ended up, you know, laying off most of the staff and and kind of downsizing. And so I got to kind of early in my career, see both the positives of startups and also, you know, the negatives if, if they're not built in the right way. And then that kind of really opened the door to looking for a company that was going to be, you know, have all the right ingredients to, to be successful. And that's when I found AdMelt. Um, and at the time it was just the two founders and a handful of engineers um, and really allowed me to kind of get in at the ground floor. So
0: you weren't put off by the fact that a startup kind of your first startup blew up in essence and you, you sort of jumped right back in the pool.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that I was so impressed with the amount of knowledge that, that you can really come away with in these companies, because when they're growing quickly, there's no time to hire people. And so new problems are coming up all the time. And so you just kind of, even if you're 21, 22, right out of college, you'll find yourself, you know, with way more responsibility than you ever thought at, at, at these early stage companies. And and that's what kind of attracted me.
0: And so AdMeld then gets sold to Google. You are You're at Google, but if I remember correctly, you were kind of on the beach at Google.
1: So what ends up happening, you know, at some of these bigger tech companies is is really they buy their competitors, really to put them out of business. You know, a big part of them buying us was so that we would just no longer compete with them. And so when we got integrated in, you know, there there was, you know, small portions of our features and stuff that kind of got added to Google AdX, which was was their competing product. But for the most part, you know, they shifted the team onto other projects um, because they were just looking for, you know, one less competitor in the space. And, you know, it's hard to fault them. They've had this strategy for a while and now they, you know, pretty much have a monopoly on many parts of the ad tech ecosystem, which was really, you know, video was one of the areas that they were struggling. And I could see it because there was a big fight going on between the group I was in, which was the Google ads group and YouTube over who was going to own video. And so I could see that this fight was causing them to really fall behind in this important category at the time. And that's really why, you know, many of uh, myself and many of uh, my colleagues ended up going to LiveRail was because it was like, oh, who's going to benefit? Well, clearly this company is going to benefit. And most of us thought it would just sell back to Google within a year. Um, So when it ended up selling to to Facebook, it was a little bit of a surprise. And it was kind of at that moment that I stepped back and said, you know, do I really want to keep going in ad tech like what does the future look for it
0: so this would have been around 2012 13 and you have companies like on deck and lending club and prosper growing rapidly fintech starting to take a lot of momentum on but you've been an ad tech person the whole time how did you how did you make that pivot into financial technology
1: so I think one of the interesting um, notes that, that people don't talk about uh, very often is, is the fact that it wasn't a smooth journey. I actually ended up pitching VCs, I don't know, the Orchard idea, nine to 12 months before we actually ended up getting funded, and there was no interest whatsoever. Why is this ad tech guy you know, trying to move into peer-to-peer lending, et cetera? And I just kind of stuck with it. The initial idea was going to be a much more of a retail product to help them manage their, uh, their peer-to-peer lending assets because uh, myself and my, my co-founders of Orchard, we were all investing our own own assets on the personal side. And so it was really the feedback I got from VCs and kind of went back and thought about it more. And then when we started to watch the institutional investors move into the space was really when I said, oh, okay, I think that now my pitch to the venture capital community is going to be right. And sure enough, when we we did it the second time around, you know, we had a a lot of interest.
0: So you shifted the business model from retail to institutional capital flows. So you've had experiences as a a founder, as a, a worker at startup companies, and now you're at a venture capital firm, QED Investors. Talk about the transition to QED. How did that come about? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think the funny line about
1: VCs is like no one ever like dreamed of being a VC when they were going to grow up. You know, everyone kind of accidentally ended up in this uh, in this industry. and, And I think my story is the same you know, kind of post-selling Orchard to Cabbage, the shifting of some of the uh, remaining assets. So uh, you know, now uh, Velocity slash short hop, you know, is is, is still the, the piece that's run by Jonathan Kelfer, um, who was my co-founder as well. Once that was all kind of settled, you know, uh, kind of looking out, I really needed a break. You know, I'd been kind of five years of grinding. And so, you know, ended up saying, okay, I'm going to take, you know, some time this summer, you know, and, and kind of relax, and then I got a call from from Nigel and Frank, uh, you know, initially saying, "Hey, come help some of our portfolio companies," and you know, kind of they had been an investor in Orchard, so I'd gotten to know them super well. I knew QED was known for for really leaning in with the companies, and and you know, a lot of VCs say value add, but what it doesn't really actually come to be, and and so they were really trying to to kind of you know live through that and, and add value. Um, And so that's kind of how I kind of stepped into it was initially just uh, just working with them kind of part time.
0: So you've been in the VC world a little bit now, but do you think there are commonalities between a successful venture capitalist and a successful entrepreneur or are those two different worlds? I think they're two different skill sets. You know, one of the the biggest
1: kind of surprises for me was just the feedback loop on the VC side is just so different. You know, every day when I was an operator, I would have, you know, information and data coming back to me saying, am I moving in the right direction? You know, are we kind of, you know, hitting our numbers, you know, and and, and kind of you have have a constant kind of almost drinking from a fire hose uh, in the startup world. And on the VC side, you know, it's it's. You know, you make a bet and then you might not know for years if it was the right decision. And so that transition, you know, I've, I've realized this is requires a very different set of skills and uh, quite a bit of adjusting uh, to get used to it. The thing that I think is similar is the network as kind of a, a startup founder. uh you end up kind of really networking in with the rest of the community because it's so important for not only getting investors and building relationship with the press, but also really your kind of peers so that you can lean on to them for support and help with recruiting and all of those pieces. And so the network that you build out kind of in the startup world has a, obviously a high overlap with the, the kind of VC world. And so that's where I think that I've had an advantage where my network sources deals for me. I don't have to spend all day long reaching out to companies. You know, people know what I'm interested in. They know what I'm excited about. And because I've built this network in New York over, you know, this last decade plus, it makes it a lot easier to, to, to basically see kind of some of those opportunities early. And your network today is global. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the global side. So fintech is not a U.S.
0: trend. Right. Um, We're going to talk about that in a, in a, in a bit frame for us where the VC world is today, the, the WeWork debacle seemed to have soured a lot of uh, the, let's call it the common person's view of venture capital and crazy valuations. And what are these people doing? How did this happen? Talk about the impact of WeWork on the venture capital community, or, or is it just business as usual? And this is just, you know, these things happen from time to time. I think that the
1: the biggest wake up call with WeWork was just everyone said, you know, had a reevaluation of of what multiples you should be investing on. You know, what you saw with WeWork and what you've seen with some other companies like Peloton and Uber and others is when they were raising money in the VC community, they were getting tech multiples. And then when they went public... They were getting much more traditional multiples. And even some of the, you know, direct-to-consumer brands, you know, I think everybody's starting to realize that you're going to get 1x revenue for these businesses. You're not going to get 8x or 10x, you know, that the private markets were giving some of these businesses. And so I think that's kind of the adjustment is going through. Now it takes time right? Because startups don't raise, they're not, if you're not public, you're not raising money every day or not, I don't have the ability to. And so, you know, I think uh, over the next kind of year or two, that will slowly kind of diffuse into the rest of the environment. But on the early stage side, it's still very competitive. You know, like I, I look at the world in which, you know, when I moved to New York City, the type of money you could raise as a startup and the valuations you could get versus today, I mean, it's still... I mean, people are calling it frothy, but it's very high. You know, there's, there's still a lot of capital out
0: there. Lift the curtain on the venture capital, the mysterious venture capital world. What are some of the common misperceptions out there by LPs, by people who aren't as familiar with the venture capital space as, as other areas of investment? What are some of the things that people don't understand or don't get about venture capital?
1: The first kind of misconception that I that I see quite often is that they think that VCs are all about picking companies, you know, that there's this democratic process where the entrepreneur goes and pitches, you know, 20 VCs and the the smartest VC will be able to identify which is going to be the, the, the great company and, and pick them and back them. You know, in reality, what you find is, is that uh, picking companies is really, really, really difficult. And so the, the best VCs tend to have, you know, a brand and a reputation where they get pitched first an entrepreneur who's coming out with an idea, you know, will typically pick kind of five or six VCs as their first round, kind of their tier one. And if you're in that tier one, you actually have a huge advantage. Your deal flow is a massive advantage um, in your ability to, to actually create uh, out performance. And so, People don't understand that the worst thing about VC is where you're actually, you know, not seeing the best deals, you know, and therefore you're getting adversely selected. And given the failure rates, getting adversely selected in this industry is uh, means that, that it's very easy to have negative returns. Right, because things can go to zero,
0: and, and they often do. And talk about that portfolio approach. Are venture capital firms reliant on? a very small percentage of winners to make their returns to LPs. Is that the, is that the basic model? If there's 20 investments in a, in a portfolio, three of them work and that's how, LPS get their 15 to 25 percent return
1: yeah I mean I think the the biggest thing about the VC world is is that the returns you know on the top quartile of VCS are just very different from kind of you know everything else and so when you're the best you know you can you know it's it happens not not regularly but on it but you can have 5x 10x 15x funds you know? And so when you see these outperformance on the fun side, it normally is because one or two companies were just breakout successes. Now, if, if you don't have a breakout success company, but you do well, you know, you can still get your fun to being kind of in that three to four X, right? Which is what I think most VCs aim for. Um, just, for everybody's understanding, kind of uh, typically it's, you know, a three year investment period and then kind of, you know, the fun life is anywhere between seven and 10 years. Just so, so that people have uh, context on that. But the way that I think about it is you're really believing in this business at the earliest stage and you believe that they're going to grow at, you know, 100, you know, uh, or they're really going to grow at, you know, two, three X per year for a decade. Right, like that. That that's what you're really betting on is is that there's such strong product market fit that these companies are going to continue to compound, and, and that's really what drives you know most of the
0: return. Does that mean you avoid businesses that are potentially very good but just aren't going to grow quite that fast? They may be fast growers, but
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think the the most difficult position that I've found myself in as a VC is when I see a business and I'm like, wow, this is a great business. But it's much better as a lifestyle business where it's going to be very profitable, you know, on a small scale, you know, under 20 million in revenue, but very profitable. And this would be awesome if I was a private equity investor because I could just div in this, div this out and like, you know, make my returns that way. VC doesn't work like that. The opportunity cost of our time requires us to,
0: to really aim for companies that at minimum can get to 100 million in revenue let's take a step back and talk about financial technology that squashing the market podcasts is all about investing and, and fintech fintech is many things it's payments it's exchanges it's wealth management it's bitcoin it's it's a lot of things what are the areas of fintech that you and qed are most interested in today what are you, what are the what, what's going on in the industry one is is on the international side so qed is
1: unique is the fact that it, uh, the firm just invests in fintech and in order to actually make that work, uh, you actually need to invest you know, more on a global basis. Because if you just are a sector-specific fund in one geo... Then the trends within that geo, you know, are are going to be a huge impact, you know, on you. And so, if the U.S. fintech market is having a bad year, well, you're going to have a bad year. And so, by investing also in Latin America and also in the U.K. Um, in Europe, and even extending on, you know, I, I just got back from India, and we're looking at some some opportunities both in India and Southeast Asia for the first time ever. Um, it allows you to be able to kind of say, okay, well, we've seen these trends play out in Europe. And now we expect them to play out in the U.S. Or we've seen this breakout company in Brazil with this amazing business model. We think that with a couple tweaks, there's probably opportunity for this business model to work. The other area is really this trend of, of you know, the first wave of, of fintechs was really broad. You know, you had Lending Club who were saying, you know, my customer, you know, is every kind of U.S. consumer. And where we're seeing kind of the where the the puck is headed uh, within fintech is much more focusing on specific user groups that have specific needs. And instead of just having one product to a large population, you have a smaller population, but you have multiple products that you sell them. And so whether this is landlords, uh, which we have one investment in a, kind of a, a vertical landlord bank that, that you know, wants to do lending, payments, bank accounts, insurance, you know, full service on this, or doctors and dentists. So we have an investment in LindEver, which focuses on products just for this. uh, And it's everything from, you know, loans for, you know, buying out kind of uh, a senior doctor or dentist, so practice finance all the way through all the other services. You know, we're looking at businesses that are focused on musicians, businesses that are focused on high net worth, foreigners who want to buy assets in the US, you know, these very specific groups that have needs um, that where we think that they can build kind of a, a real moat around their business, because the issue is the version one um, fintech players, when they went public, and you can see it in the stock, they didn't really build enterprise value. There wasn't really any moats in their businesses and the banks were able to copy them pretty easily. I think the version two that are, you know, have multiple products are going to have, you know, much, much higher enterprise value.
0: And that that's because those entrepreneurs and those businesses have core competencies and expertise in a particular customer base. It sounds like dentists, doctors, musicians.
1: Yeah, and I think they're just stickier. The idea that like, you know, down the street from us is Goldman the idea that Marcus is going to build out a product just for doctors and dentists i just can't see it happening right because everything in the banking dna it, it, over the last 30 years has all been about you know how do we simplify our product set how do we have one product that reaches as many people as possible you see you know less and less credit cards out there you see less and less types of mortgages out there you know there's there's really been kind of this walmart you know, kind of, of banking services that has gone on. And so the idea to flip it and and go to, we're going to personalize everything. I think it would be just very, very difficult for them. Um, And, and I think that it's also one of those things that uh, it's hard, you know, like just doing kind of a, you know, unsecured consumer credit card refinance product is not that hard. Figuring out payments,
0: lending, insurance, bank accounts, I mean, this stuff is hard, you know, to do well. You've been through the process of raising capital uh, as a entrepreneur for a company. Take us through that process. How how does it work? How do people do it? What are the difficulties involved? Uh, what are the risks? The rewards? I think when
1: I you know was making the leap from being a startup employee um, to to really being a founder and going out and raising money, you know the the advice that I'd wish I had been given. Is that, you know, it's really about a narrative. It's really about a story that you're trying to tell, you know, which says, you know, one, you know, what is the gap in the market that you have identified that no one else is seeing? What's the opportunity that no one else is seeing? Right. And being able to tell a compelling story on why that opportunity exists. And then the second part is like, why you? You know, why are your skill sets the perfect person to fix that? It doesn't, it's not enough for there to be a problem in the market. There also has to be, you have to be the perfect one to solve it. And really, you know, working on that narrative is much more important than the deck. You know, I wasted a lot of time working on decks and it makes you feel like you're making progress, but you're actually not making progress because no one makes a VC decision based on a deck. You know, you're going to sit down, um, you know, with angel investors or with, you know, venture capitalists, and you're going to get five minutes of a coffee meeting. And in those five minutes, when they you meet them for the first time, you have to tell the most compelling five-minute story of your life. And that is what you should spend 95% of your time on. And if they're telling you that your story is not good, take that feedback and adjust it to, to something in which, uh, you know, that they get really excited about because VCs do have a lot of experience. You know, they they hear, you know, a thousand pitches a year. And so uh, I think that that's kind of the advice that that I find myself giving to entrepreneurs.
0: I know you've been traveling a lot and, You mentioned it before, fintech is truly global. Talk about what's going on out there. What parts of the world, in your view, are leading fintech? What are some of the trends you think that are happening abroad that may be coming to the U.S. or vice versa, U.S. to other areas of the world? What's going on out there? And who's ahead? What regions? So I, I think the big stories right now are
1: obviously the neobanks in Europe, you know, which have grown rapidly there and have all kind of announced that they're coming to the U.S. You know, we're still a little bit skeptical about kind of the unit economics of many of these businesses. But look, the the trend is there and and they're spending money and raising money. And so you got to pay attention to that. So I think that's kind of one big global trend that's going on. I think the, the second one um, that I've been following very closely is what's going on within kind of the real estate side of fintech in Brazil is super interesting. I think a lot of that will end up getting exported to to the U.S. So making of real estate easier to buy and sell and manage and lease and all of these pieces, you know, I think that the developing world, because it's such a broken problem there, a larger problem they're solving it uh, first there in ways that I I haven't seen quite come to the U.S. yet.
0: We've seen a lot of real estate platforms here in the U.S., Realty Mogul, Pierce Street, etc. What's different about those, the platforms you're talking about?
1: So the platforms here on the real estate side are really just capital markets kind of plays and investment plays and, and sort of, you know some level of uh, arbitrage. Uh, there, they're actually, in many cases, buying the properties themselves, putting up insurance guarantees. They're, they're active, you know, in the process of transforming real estate in these markets. You know, there isn't kind of uh, the same level of national data sets on what homes are worth, and you know, it's just it's the amount of friction that goes on in any transaction in Latin America is just 10x what it is here in the U.S. Like, so there's room for there's fintechs room. to come in there, correct, and, and, and streamline processes, correct. And and what's so interesting is is that once they get their foot in the door. And, and a good example of this is like New Bank, right? It's not real estate, but like once NewBank got their foot in the door with consumers on credit cards, their ability to cross sell bank accounts and their ability, and they have a bunch of other products kind of in queue has been amazing to watch. You know, cross selling is one of those things that like at QED, we really didn't believe in. You know, it, it was it was one of these rare things. You were either, you know, USAA who was able to do it, but for a very particular reason around their population, uh, target kind of population or your Wells Fargo and you were lying about your cross selling. You know, um, everyone else has kind of not had success with it. But I think that we are seeing now the beginnings of especially with, you know, financial products that are delivered through apps. If you can make it easy where it's one click to cross sell and they don't have to fill out a new application, they don't have to talk to anyone. You're really seeing kind of these walls get broken down.
0: What are the red flags or the alarm bells that go off when things aren't going well at a company? What, what do you start to see? What's the early warning system at QED or, or for any VC, frankly? This is going to vary by stage.
1: So I think my feedback is, is mainly around the seed stage. And at the seed stage, you're really looking for product market fit. You know, the big hypothesis there is do people want to buy this thing? If product market fit, you know, is found, it typically shows itself up in the sales numbers, right? And so you're, you're seeing that kind of organic demand come in. You're seeing, oh, you know, the CEO is able to close the first 10 deals themselves with no problem or the partnerships, you know, and everything feels great. Every entrepreneur knows when you have product market fit. It's like the greatest feeling in the world. The problem is it's hard to find. You know, and so most of the time kind of and people talk about the kind of trough of sorrow in, in, in startup world where you're looking for it. And so I think that typically when it's not going uh, things aren't going well is typically when you haven't found product market fit, you're trying to sell something. It's you're not getting the pull through numbers you thought or you're not getting the size contracts you wanted. And so really, you know, it's a lot about equity. OK, well, what do we need to change? Right. If it's not working, we cannot do the same thing tomorrow that we did yesterday. Right. We have to figure out some twist. Sometimes it's a business model twist. Right. Sometimes the product is amazing, but the way you're charging for it is not you know, acceptable for that corporate. Right. We watch a lot of companies try to sell into banks and they're very tricky to figure out how to charge banks, you know, and, and how it's going to be you know, uh, uh, accounted for on their end. And what's the tax treatment? There's a lot of complexities. And so really it's, you know, if if we're seeing the forecasts, you know, come in below, it's really saying, okay, well, how do we lean in and try to help them find product market fit?
0: So it's that time of year. What would be your two or three predictions for 2020 in terms of fintech? I think it's going to be 2020,
1: a really interesting year. You have a bunch of kind of the the high flying um, uh, fintech guys who really uncertain how they're gonna, you know, play out. You know, you have Robin Hood who raised huge valuations, but now you have the incumbents who have now cut their costs to zero and 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 really changed kind of that landscape radically. You have Chime that just raised a ton of money. So you have all the European guys coming over. So a lot of money is going to be deployed in 2020. I don't think we actually know what that's gonna do to customer acquisition costs and what it's gonna do to you know how many of these business models actually work. And so I'm very interested. You know, I think we, we haven't had that many IPOs in fintech. You know, and the ones that have gone out have, have been a mixed bag at best.
0: At best. Lending Club, On Deck, Green Sky have all been on the, the red side of the ledger, if you will. Yeah, I mean, the, the real winner has been Square. Absolutely. And, you know,
1: in the private markets, you know, Stripe is is still, you know, very high. I mean, the pay, the, the trend of kind of payments providers adding lending you know, has been, you know, a way for them to really be able to become attractive, um, you know, companies. And so you're kind of watching that playbook play out. But, you know, these investments can only stay illiquid for so long. You know, you, you really need to start to see some of these other companies go public. You know, I, I'm very interested to see kind of this this dynamic between the public markets and the private markets on the late stage.
0: One of the things I love to ask all the guests on Squash the Market is about their own personal investment journey and how they organize their own finances. Talk for a moment, if you will, about your investment process personally, saving for the future. Talk more broadly about your approach to investing personally.
1: Yeah, my, my approach is one of diversify, diversify, diversify. Um, so... Uh, And I I kind of take this to an extreme. So if you look at kind of my portfolio, I have kind of the traditional 401k from all the companies that that I've worked at.
0: And in those 401ks, is typically stocks, bonds, index funds, would you say?
1: It's, It's for the most part all kind of, you know... Target, you know, what is it like? Target date funds. Target date funds and, and and cheap and Vanguard and really just trying to not beat the market. I'm just trying to find the cheapest way to access kind of the, the, the consistent. Then uh, kind of my next piece was real estate. So uh, I own real estate both in New York and, and in Texas, you know, for kind of investment properties and, and really view that kind of passive income as as, as being a key uh, portion. And then I'm heavy in the alternatives uh, bucket as well. So within alternatives, I have angel investments that I've made. I have advisory um, shares that I've, uh, uh, agreements that I have with some startups that, uh, of my friends. Um, I obviously through QED have kind of carry and funds that are diversified across kind of a large number of startups there. I own crypto um, and I still have kind of small holdings in. kind of the peer to peer lending space as well. Um, And some of the kind of alternative real estate platforms that you were talking about, really just to try to get into everything that I think has a chance uh, of outperforming over the next 30 years.
0: But there's a lot of income generative assets in there, the real estate, you're you're clipping a coupon in a sense. Exactly. I mean, and,
1: and, and my view is, is that that is an important piece, right? It's not just the 401k, the target funds, I I do want income generating. And even, um, you know, I know, I know, uh, in a previous episode, you had Zach on, you know, even my crypto holdings right now, I have being put to work at at BlockFi, um, because I really want to make my assets work for me um, as, as as a key goal on that. And just, you know, Have that level of diversification that the chances of all of them kind of, you know, blowing up at the
0: same time is very low. So we've reached that point in the podcast where we do what's called the lightning round, where I'm going to give you pairs of words and you're just going to pick one. You don't have to say why. Just pick one of the two alternatives. So here we go. IPO or sale of the company? Sale of the company. Texas or New York? New York. Angel investor or Series B investor? Angel investor. Bitcoin or the US dollar? Bitcoin. US Open or Wimbledon? US Open. Asia or Latin America? Latin America. Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley? Silicon Alley. Preference rights or board seat? Board seat. Management fee or carry? Carry. Tennis or squash? Tennis. Thank you, Matt Burton. It's been a pleasure having you on Squashing the Market. Thanks so much, Bill.